Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, good morning. It's uh, been such a blessing to be with you all. A few more this morning, I think. And um, we've just been so glad to get to know your church as a church that is a warm community, love the Word of God, love each other. It's been a privilege to be a part of that. Um, By the way, this morning, because it's church, I'm old school. Do you recognize what's on this tie? Actually, I have two students from a certain country and say, oh, you're wearing our national flag. So you know what country that would be? Chile. Chile, yeah. They said, oh, great, you're wearing the Chilean flag today to school. That's great. Um, we, but I try to represent living in North Carolina, even before in Southern California. This morning, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And even though I don't know each of you as well as I would like to know you, I know things about you that every one of you has been hurt by other people. Each one of you, and this includes the children, your, your friends sometimes have hurt your feelings, your siblings, brothers, sisters, sometimes do unkind things to you. Even we parents sometimes do wrong things to our children and have to seek their forgiveness. I hope we parents have done a good job of that, to be humble and set an example. And so we're going to talk about what the Bible says about forgiveness. Now, for those who weren't here last night or want to review, we're talking about biblical peacemaking. And we talked about how conflict is unavoidable in life. Romans 12, 18, as far as is possible with you to be at peace with all men, you're going to experience conflict until the Lord returns. And we've seen conflict can be dangerous because we often either, what are the two ways we respond wrongly to conflict, we either fight or run, flee. And the Bible has better answers for that. And we talked about how we focus on doing this for the glory of God, not the glory of self. We want to please God, how we handle conflict. And then we begin by getting the log out of our own eye. We, in conflict, usually we see everything the other person is doing wrong, and we have a hard time seeing our own sins and faults. And so Examine yourself, Uh, search me, O God, as the psalm says, and confess your sin to the Lord and then the other person. We also talked about how Jesus says, after you get the log out of your eye, what can you do? Take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And the Bible teaches our duty often is to go to others for the purpose not of venting our anger on them, but to restore them, Galatians 6. You who are, if someone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. And so part of love and in the community of the church, there are going to be people who hurt each other's feelings. There are going to be people who sin. And we want to make sure we're right with God. But then before we do this, but then we go to people lovingly, not angrily, not in the flesh, but in the spirit to bring correction. And then this morning, we're going to focus on the last major element we're going to cover, which is forgiving each other. And forgiveness is hard. And we're going to cover primarily the situation where someone has hurt you and you're being called upon to forgive. And that's tough. They're asking you to forgive. Uh, The example I gave last night of the man who was unfaithful to his wife. And when he told me about it, there was another case, actually, of a man who was unfaithful to his wife, and you need to seek her forgiveness. You need to confess and ask her to forgive. But then what's she to do in that situation where her husband has wasted lots of money and done bad things? Uh, forgiveness can be really hard. We're also going to touch towards the end on another situation, and I, I bet there are many people in this situation where someone's hurt you, and they've never asked you for forgiveness. What do you do then? That can be really, really difficult. I wanted to, I mentioned yesterday the resource of Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, which is like 300 pages. There's kind of the mini version uh, called Resolving Everyday Conflict, which could be easier for some people to read. I think it's something churches ought to have some copies of, but it it just goes to the, the basics of what I've been covering. 
sorry for the noise. Anyway, so as we talk about forgiving others, when you don't forgive, what happens? You're tempted to become bitter. C.S. Lewis says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Then Ken Sandy, I think quoting someone else, says, unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. And so my favorite passage about forgiveness, and this is one, it's not just one I share with others, it's one that I speak to my own heart very often. This is Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. And Peter says, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, the one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And I'll stop there for now. Uh, this is the point of the parable right in the beginning. And if you're a Christian today, you have been forgiven much. And Jesus is using this illustration uh, to help us understand how much we've been forgiven by the Lord. And I love that we sang the, the song of confession and we've sung about how we've been forgiven through the cross already. And this picture here of a, you know, how much is 10,000 talents? Um, you know, that's a big debt. And the point is that we are very big sinners. We are great sinners, not little sinners. And a challenge as you look at this is, do you see your sin, honestly see your sin the way Jesus describes it? And many people who are not yet believers will say, oh yeah, nobody's perfect. I actually heard about a situation a while back in a big meeting where they changed one of the hymns for, you know, instead of sins to mistakes. Often when I'm counseling, people talk about their mistakes and I say, no, that's not a mistake. A mistake is if you misadd a row of numbers. Sin is when you hurt other people and violate the law of God. It's sin. But so often we can say, yeah, I know, but I'm better than most people. I try hard. I'm sincere. The scripture says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy, a filthy garment. And Jesus is saying that your sin is great. It's greater than you can even comprehend. It's like Tim Keller says, you are more sinful and more wicked than you could even imagine when you set yourself before, as we consider the law of God today, none of us have loved God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. None of us has loved his neighbor as himself. And Jesus here in the parable is using hyperbole, okay? I mean, now you picture it a normal situation back in that economy, and you've got a servant working for his master, and he's rung up this debt. You say, well, how much is 10,000 talents? Well, a talent would be 15 years wage. And at the median income of the United States today, you would be approaching $10 billion. I don't know about you, but my credit card limit is lower than that. Um, maybe if I had Zimbabwe dollars or something. But, um, and so the story doesn't even really make sense. It's a story. It's a parable. It's not something that really happened. Because no servant could run up a debt like that. But the point is that that's a picture of how guilty we are. And actually, it's not even enough. Our debt against God is infinite because we've offended a perfect majesty. Isaiah says, behold, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And a great barrier to many people becoming Christians is we've already also had First John quoted us today. The Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I would claim that those who are not really Christians don't take their sin as seriously as Jesus does. Uh, they often have this idea, well, I do some good things, I do some bad things, I hope the good things are more than the bad things. The scripture teaches we are dead in our trespasses and sins by nature. We are deserving of God's wrath. And, and that's just the point Jesus is making here, that we were very great sinners. We owed a debt we could not pay. And then it's also a picture of how God 
graciously forgives those who ask him. Uh, When the slave humbled himself before his master, it says the master had compassion on him. And by the way, last night we went through what a good confession would be. This is not a very, he didn't use the seven A's of confession here. What did he say? Give me time and I'll pay back the $10 billion. Like really? You know, what's the minimum monthly payment on that credit card debt? He's delusional if he thinks he can pay that debt back. But even so, uh, the master is exceedingly gracious and doesn't just, by the way, he doesn't say, okay, I'll give you more time. He released him from the debt. He got more than he asked for. And the scripture says that's the way God forgave you. God forgives those who ask through Christ. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And just as the master gave forgiveness without any payment being made, but simply did so in a gracious way, that is how God has forgiven us. Titus chapter 2, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so, according to the Bible, and by the way, this is something that really is hard for people, hard for non-Christians, hard for people even from uh, semi-Christian backgrounds, because they get this idea, don't I have to do something? I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, most salesmen can't get the buyer up to his price, but I can't get the buyer down to my price, and the, the gospel is free. And, and so just by asking, not by penance, not by works, all you had to do is ask God for Christ's sake to forgive you, and he forgave you. And actually, the forgiveness you received is even better than in the parable. In the parable, and by the way, in general, parables are usually trying to make one point. And if you try to learn, make them allegories where every little thing matches up, you're going to get confused. There's one point, and I'll give it away. Forgive each other. <laughs> as God has forgiven you. That's the point of the parable. And he's making the point through details that uh, don't precisely correspond to how it happened. But when the, in the parable, all the master had to do is say, okay, I'll erase the debt, which was extraordinarily generous. But it wasn't that easy for God. What did God have to do? When he loved the world, he had to give his only begotten son that Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. That, uh, and, and this is something, so God had to pay the price of our debt through the death of his son. Jesus paid it all as we sing. And so it was a greater forgiveness. But even more than that, when the servant was done with that initial interaction with his master, he went from owing you know, the $10 billion down to being debt-free. Is that what Jesus did for you? Or did he do better? For you know the grace, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made not just debt-free, but rich. And so if the parable were an allegory, or is trying to get closer to an allegory, it wasn't just that the master would have said, okay, I wipe out your debt. He would have said, not only do I wipe out your debt, I now adopt you as my son and heir and everything I have is yours. Because that's what our forgiveness was. That we have been given the righteousness of Christ in its infinite value, his imputed righteousness gained to us. And now we're sons of God and heirs of his kingdom. Point of the parable is if you struggle with forgiveness, you need to meditate upon God's gracious forgiveness to you. And it's just throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. And these are verses that you're familiar with, but we just need to, especially again, you're hurting, you're having a hard time forgiving. See what the Lord has done for you. Isaiah 118, come now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, he has so far removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
So before I move on to the next part of the parable, I'm going to challenge you, and I think especially the children. Have you experienced this kind of forgiveness? Have you recognized that you are a very great sinner? You could never be good enough for God to accept you by your own goodness. And if you ask God to forgive you for Christ's sake, have you really trusted that when Jesus went to the cross, he died for our sins, for all who believe in him, and that he lived a perfect life? And when we believe in him, God gives us, like clothes us, takes off our filthy clothes of our sin and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. The only way you can be forgiven is to believe that from the heart as God enables you. And you really can't forgive others the way God has designed unless that's happened. Which brings us to the next part of the parable. And when we're told to forgive others as God has forgiven us, forgiveness is really hard. And it actually begins when Peter, in verse 21, asks the question, should I forgive my brother seven times? That sounds like a whole bunch. And again, Jesus uses a kind of hyperbole, not seven times, but 70 times seven. I heard a story, I think it was fictional, but long years ago where you had two siblings and there was a bratty sister and a brother who was getting tired of it. And the mother said, well, you need to forgive her 70 times seven. So for about four weeks, they didn't fight. And then you hear a smack and the little girl is crying. And the son said, well, that was 491. <laughs> I could tell you in 43 years of marriage, you're way beyond that. And so forgiveness can be hard. And then when we get down to the next section, we haven't yet read yet in verse 25, 20, 28. Now that slave, the one who had been forgiven, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into the prison till he should pay back what was owed. Okay. One aspect of this that I didn't get many years ago is a hundred denarii isn't like just a handful of pennies or something. A denarii was a day's wage. It's that in another parable that Jesus tells. And so, again, using our economy, this would be twenty-five to $30,000 that slave two owed to slave one. If somebody owed you $30,000, would that be easy to forgive? It would be challenging. Forgiveness can be really hard. And that's, that's a reality, is that when people hurt us, I mean, it's easy if somebody bumps you in line and, excuse me, okay, please forgive me, yes. But there are times in life when there are very, very deep hurts that take place in families, in churches, and we need the help of the Lord. But as you move ahead in verses 31, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, until he should re repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. So the point is, forgiveness is not optional for forgiven people. When someone wrongs you, and they hurt you, and they seek your forgiveness, you have a debt to the Lord to pay. It's interesting, like in the Lord's Prayer, and I often use that as kind of an outline for my prayers of the day, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That's kind of a scary thing to pray. It's a cause for self-examination. Do I, do I really want God to only forgive me as much as I forgive others? That, that is frightening. And yet, Jesus is saying, I have the right to ask you this. And I'll, I'll give you an illustration that uh, a few years ago we had our 40th anniversary and Caroline's dream was to get our sons and their families all together, a family photo. And the problem is that two of our sons were estranged. 
One is not talking to the other. The other acts like he doesn't care. And they had not been in the same room in a very, very long time. So what did Caroline do? She pleads with them, for my sake, will you come? For my sake, as your mother, who gave birth to you and nursed you and cared for you and taught you, will you come and be nice and have the family together? Well, that kind of appeal, thankfully, was successful. Well, if Caroline had that right appeal, how much more does Jesus have to say, I want you to forgive those who have wronged you for my sake? It, at the end of Ephesians 4, we've talked about already dresses in various ways, but you think, don't let the sun go down in your anger. We're, we're tempted when others wrong us to want them to pay. And yet, that's not how God has treated us. Again, I will confess personally uh, that when others wrong me, and it's those closest to us that we're most tempted to be upset with, um, I want them to pay. <laughs> I want justice. And yet, the point Jesus is making here is that if you refuse to forgive, you are acting like you're disconnected from the gospel. Later in Luke, when he's with a, there was a sinful woman who came and there was a Pharisee hosting Jesus. And you say, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. If you understand the forgiveness you've received, the cost of your forgiveness, then you will want to forgive others for his sake. Now, some people get confused by that. Jesus is not saying, if you've been forgiven, you can lose your salvation. The things in the Bible that straighten out that. This is a parable. Again, what's the point of the parable? Because you've been forgiven much, you should forgive others. That's the point. Now, in the context of the parable, uh, the guy that the slave who had been forgiven when he doesn't forgive his brother, he's punished. You, you could argue that a real believer will be a forgiving person. A real believer will obey this. But he's not saying you can lose your salvation. And so our forgiving should be like God's forgiving. How did God forgive you? Well, Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. What did that look like? So someone's hurt you, someone's wronged you. Well, God grants forgiveness to those who ask. If we ask him, he forgives. He doesn't make you do penance. That's another religion where you have to do stuff to make it up. You don't have to go to purgatory to pay off your debt. The work of Christ fully satisfies God's demands. And something that is pictured in this is that forgiveness is giving release or canceling a debt. That I'm, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not going to demand justice of you. I think it's also significant that as God declares our forgiveness in Scripture, that if someone asks you to forgive, part of the process is to say, I forgive you. Some people say, well, what if I don't feel it? Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision. And it's not always easy. Now, the hardest phrase in this passage is just the last few words in verse 35, when Jesus says the words, from your heart. Uh, when I am hurt, and if Caroline has hurt me, for example, and she asks for forgiveness, I know what I'm supposed to do. I've got to say, yes, I forgive you. I do that. But this heart business can be much more difficult because I have a sinful heart that sometimes demands justice. And so we have to pray that God will, will change our hearts. And then... Forgiveness restores relationships, and even forgiveness in the Bible, God doesn't just forgive us, he does good for us. And I think of the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. After his brothers did all those awful things to him, he not only embraces them and forgives them, but he cares for them. He loves them. And we also know that when you know you've done wrong and you have to ask somebody to forgive you, it can mean so much when they love you in return. Now, there are misunderstandings that people may have about forgiveness. Uh, forgiving is not merely forgetting. Like, what I mean is, as we, in Isaiah 43 and in Jeremiah 31, it says, God will remember our sins no more. And when it says, God will remember our sins no more, it doesn't mean that God's omniscience is compromised and he doesn't know what you did. It means he will not remember them against you anymore. 
He's not going to charge you against them. Uh, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, he says. And so when someone hurts you, it doesn't that you have lost the ability to, comp- to remember what they did to you. It's that if it comes into your mind, you don't remember it against them because you know you've forgiven them for Christ's sake. Also, forgiveness is not lightly excusing sin. Uh, when God forgave you, um, it was a costly forgiveness. In Colossians 1, verse 20, says that through Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And so God made peace with you. He didn't just say, okay, I forgive you, no big deal, boys will be boys. He paid a great price. So when we forgive, it's not lightly excusing sin. It's really taking that burden of sin on ourselves. And then, like I said, forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is much more of a decision. Would God have me to forgive? That's what I need to do and pray that he will give me the strength to do it. Uh, One author said very helpfully, forgiveness is both a decision and sometimes a process as well. You make the decision to forgive and then as life goes on and you struggle with it, you continue to strive to keep that commitment. Um, Sometimes in counseling, people will say, well, I said I forgave her, but it's still bothering me. Maybe I didn't really forgive her. My answer would be, no, you forgave her. You, you, forgiveness was a decision. And now it's sometimes hard to keep the promises you made when you forgave her. So it's not that you unforgive her because you're not feeling it. It's rather that you strive to keep the promises you made in forgiveness. Uh, last night when I passed out the folder of the Peacemaker material, he, Ken Sandy has um, four promises that people who forgive should make. And it's based upon forgiving as God has forgiven us. It's based upon God remembering our sins no more. And it's also based upon 1 Corinthians 13, that love does not keep a record of wrongs suffered. And so, like in the example last night, where the husband finally repents of his wrong that he did to his wife, uh, how does she forgive? Well, I will not think about this incident. You know, if you keep picturing what the other person did and he's picturing his wife with the other woman or, you know, whatever else the other person did to them, uh, that's going to tempt you to become bitter. You have to choose. Philippians 4 says, whatever is good and true and right and honorable, dwell on these things, think on these things. Uh, We can choose what we think about. And I have to think about it as God wants me to see it, as I've decided to forgive and not to dwell on it in my mind. I will not bring this up and use it against you. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love does not keep a record of wrongs suffered. There's some cases where, okay, this thing has been forgiven. You know, somebody spent too much money and it's messed up the budget and, okay, they sought forgiveness and you forgave. But then nine months later when there's another financial, remember what you did back then. That's a violation of the promise of forgiveness. You, you, it, ordinarily, it should be done and not used against the person again. I will not talk to others about what happened. Now, again, there can be times when you need counsel to work through a problem. The the point is you don't go gossiping and saying, let me tell you the horrible thing my kid did or my dad did. Um, you, You seek to cover their sin, not to expose it. I picture, you know, the failure of when, when, Mo, when Noah was drunk and the righteous sons covered him up rather than exposing his shame. And then I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I can forgive, but I'm not going to forget. And the call is, and I'm going to give some qualifications in a moment, forgiveness means you don't bear a grudge. And so I've, I've seen situations in marriage where one spouse has really hurt the other and says, okay, I'll forgive, I'll stay married, but then they're still keeping a distance. You're going to sleep in that room, I'll sleep in this room, you know, we'll have separate lives, I'll stay married. That's not what we're going for. Forgiveness is, I'm going to strive to bring such a level of restoration that it'll be as if it never happened or even better, because that's how God treats us. We say, well, how can I do this? Only the gospel can empower forgiveness like this. 
we don't have the strength to do it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing in John 15. And in Colossians 3, he says in verse 12, So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And it's back to what the issue of the parable is. If you have a comprehension of the price that God paid to forgive you, and a comprehension of the blessings he's given you that you didn't deserve through Christ, and that is the one. Jesus is the one who says, now for my sake, forgive your, your spouse, your friend, the person who's wronged you. Um, the gospel doesn't just show you what forgiveness looks like. It enables you to forgive. And again, I'll speak personally that I've had situations in life where I felt like I've been very deeply hurt. And I start thinking about the hundred and that I'm owed. And I get upset. But when I start thinking about my 10,000 talent debt, I literally think of Jesus on the cross because of me paying the debt of my sin. I remember the shameful things, thoughts, words, acts that I've been guilty of in my life, some that almost no one else knows about, and God has been merciful to me and forgiven me all that debt. Suddenly, it's the fraction where, you know, $30,000 seems like a lot until it's the top of a fraction that has 10 billion underneath it, especially when the one who forgave the 10 billion is telling me to be gracious. I've seen this happen, actually, this parable, the unmerciful servant. I was in a counseling situation one time where a wife had done something horrible to betray her husband, and they came in, and uh, he had, she was like kicked out of the house, living with her parents, they were a fairly young couple. He was very embittered about something she'd done with another man, and she confessed it and she was begging for forgiveness. And as far as I could tell, she was repentant. And I had him read this parable out loud. And then I even said, have you ever been guilty of the kind of thing your wife did before you were married? Or even when you were engaged to her before you were married? And he started to cry. And as God helped him to see his own sin, and to see that he was as great a sinner as his wife, he was a great sinner before God, he started asking her to forgive him for his bitterness and his hatred and, and granted her forgiveness that only God could give. I had another case where an awful thing had happened in marriage. The husband, among other things, had blown their entire retirement on stupid stuff, evil stuff. And they were approaching my present age. The wife is very responsible, very upset. He says he's repented. He's given evidence of repentance. She's just having such a hard time. And one week they came in and everything had changed. I said, what happened? She said, well, I went to the Good Friday service at our church. And the pastor described in detail what it was like for Jesus to be crucified. And I realized that if God could forgive me at such great cost, he did that for me, then I can forgive my husband for all that he's done to me. And by the grace of God, they're still together. When you see yourself as the chief of sinners, you no longer feel like judging your fellow sinner. And my own experience is when, when I meditate upon Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant, I can't stay angry. It becomes impossible for me as a believer when I realize all that God has done for me. So, questions people have about repentance or about forgiveness, sorry. One would be, how can I know if the person hurt me is really sorry, if they're really repentant. And it's true that 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says that the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And actually, in the back on the book table, I have these cards that are seven traits of worldly sorrow and seven traits of real repentance. And I think there can be cases where people try to use asking for forgiveness as a get-out-of-jail-free card while they keep doing the same thing they were doing before without even trying to change. So I think that can be a matter where that's where you need help from elders and counselors 
when, when someone clearly is just saying I'm sorry and it happens over and over and over again, more than 490 times, whatever, that there's evidence they haven't really repented of what they've done. I think of abuse and infidelity as two of the common things. Um, there can be a situation where it can be discipline or other problems. I've already mentioned, you know, what do I do if I don't feel like forgiving? Uh, I have there Philippians 4.13, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If, if God wants me to forgive, if Paul can be content in prison, he can enable me to forgive. And again, it's a decision, not a feeling. And if you're not feeling forgiving, the answer isn't for that other person to start begging you for your forgiveness again. The answer is to go back to Matthew 18, remember you're the unmerciful servant. And if you're really a Christian, the reality of God's grace to you should turn your heart away from your unforgiveness to keep the commitment you've made. What do I do if they give a really lame apology? Uh, I'm sorry. Well, I've had husbands literally say in counseling, okay, you know, 25 years of marriage, never apologize. Okay, I'm sorry for the bad stuff I did. Um, first of all, that's progress. <laughs> but second of all, I think there could be a place for the wife to say, I'm really glad you're doing that. It would just help me to understand better um, what you mean by that and to kind of gently ask for some clarification, also maybe to get help. But don't, if, if the apology is lame, try to work with them because maybe the Lord is working for repentance in their heart and they just need to be guided through that. That's also where counsel can help you. Another would be, well, can I forgive somebody and still keep my distance? I see this a lot with uh, teenagers where, okay, this person messed me around. I'll say I forgive them, but I won't eat lunch with them. I won't hang around with them. I won't answer their texts, whatever. Um, I think I'm going to get to the next point. Sometimes there could be consequences even along with forgiveness, but our desire should be to minimize those. God has minimized the consequences for us, hasn't he? And so if Joseph can forgive his brothers and embrace them and care for them, Generally speaking, I think we want to minimize the consequences, but sometimes there are, and I have a passage, it's kind of a proof text for this, and I'm going to give you the context briefly. In Numbers chapter 14, this is a story all the children know. So when they were coming into the land, remember that uh, Moses sent out how many spies? Twelve. How many came back believing? Two. Who are they? Joshua and Caleb came back. And the ten were saying, oh no, this, we can never make it, this land, we're going to get eaten alive, those people are really big, it's scary. Who did the nation follow? They followed the ten. How did God feel about that? Well, he was very angry, and he actually was threatening to judge them and start over again with Moses. And you know, in verse 11, you know, how long will these people uh, spurn me? And Moses intercedes for them. And he says in verse 19, pardon, I pray the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So Moses, in a Christ-like way, God says, these people deserve to be wiped out and judged. Moses stands between and says, please forgive this people. And the Lord says in verse 20, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. See what I'm getting at? God forgave them, and yet sometimes there were consequences is that that generation of adults did not get to enter the land. It was their children who got to go along with Joshua and Caleb. And so there can be times someone stole money. Consequence, pay back what you stole. Consequence may be we can't have you working here anymore. Uh, there, there can be some consequences. Someone has done something evil to a child and uh, the government needs to be informed and things need to be done. So sometimes sin has consequences, just that we're, we're trying not to do more than the Bible would require. Um, what, a couple of the questions that people think of, 
A common question, and I actually had somebody this week say, well, I just can't forgive myself. Have you ever heard that question? You know, have you ever heard anybody say that? My understanding is, like, how do I forgive myself is the wrong question. Because who needs to do the forgiving? God. And I, I've seen people saying, a, a young woman saying, I had an abortion, or I was immoral, or someone has something very shameful in the past, they've hurt somebody else, they've done wrong, they've stolen, and they felt very, very guilty. But you see, if you need forgiveness, the person who needs to do the forgiving is not you. The person who needs to do the forgiving is God. And the scripture says, if you seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, forsake your ways and your thoughts, he will have compassion and have abundantly and will abundantly pardon you. So the answer to feeling the guilt is not to forgive yourself and actually be kind of pride like, I'm really better than that. I can't believe I did that bad thing. I'm, I'm a much better person than that. That's just pride. No, I'm a wretched sinner. I'm worse even than I know. And my only hope is the mercy of God. So it's God's forgiveness that matters. And that if God has forgiven me, I should agree with God that I'm a recipient of great grace and bask in that and be thankful for that rather than beating up myself. If Christ has already been punished for me, I gratefully receive that with thanks rather than trying to make myself God as the one who makes judgment even of myself. Okay, last major question that people raise, and it's probably something that's been on your minds today in the sense of saying, well, you know, if that person who hurt me would ask me to forgive them, that would be nice. I, I would really be glad. And I have, you know, the hardest situations in my life has been when people have wronged me in, in very significant ways, and they've never asked for forgiveness. Sometimes things happen, and it could even be with parents who mistreated you, or siblings who mistreated you, and maybe even the people who hurt you are dead. Or, or even they're alive, and they're estranged, and they're proud, and they, they won't admit they were wrong, even though it's clear from Scripture they are wrong. What do you do then? Can you still forgive them? Um, I remember in the early 80s, there were two assassination attempts that failed. One is somebody tried to kill Ronald Reagan, the other one somebody tried to kill the Pope. And I remember something, and I may get the details not precisely right, but it, this happens quite often sometimes, where the Pope tried to forgive the guy that shot him. Now, as far as I know, the guy wasn't sorry he shot him, he was sorry he didn't kill him. <laughs> and so, the Bible teaches that we should always have an attitude of forgiveness, but that the actual transaction of forgiveness cannot take place if the other person doesn't repent. If you want to look at Luke 17, verse 3, Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. What does that apply? If he does not repent, there's a sense in which you can't completely forgive. You can't do all that forgiveness means in the relationship. The relationship may be broken in ways you can't mend. And actually, think about it. Who does God forgive? Only those who repent. And so relationships can only be completely restored when someone has betrayed you, stolen from you, you know, slandered you, done awful things to you, there's a sense in which the relationship is broken until they repent. Now, on the other hand, that doesn't mean the option is, okay, I either forgive them even though they're not sorry, or I become an embittered, nasty person who wants to get revenge. There's another option, which is you have an attitude of grace and forgiveness, hoping they will repent, remembering God's mercy to you, that can keep you from becoming embittered. And I see it in a few places in Scripture, this attitude, when Jesus is on the cross. Remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He, he was hoping they'd be forgiven. Perhaps some of those people were later converted. Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, said, Lord, do not hold this against them. And I even think of the, another parable, the parable of the prodigal son and the father who's been shamed and insulted by the son He's looking down the road, I think, hoping to see the sun. And he's not an embittered, vengeful man. He's like, I'm so glad my son has come back. I always wanted to be reconciled. But you can't make peace alone. I don't know if any of you have read the book Unbroken by Laura Hildenbrand. The movies are nowhere near as good as the uh, book. 
And it was about Louis Zamperini. He was POW in World War II. And he was in prison for a long time and he was brutalized. And there was one particular uh, officer of the Japanese who really tormented him. And after the war, after he spiraled down, some would probably consider post-traumatic stress or something, he was saved in the late 40s at a Billy Graham rally, Louis was. And part of what he did with his life after that is he went back to Japan many times preaching the gospel and even went and looked for the prison guards who had mistreated him, offering forgiveness through Christ. And when you read the book, there was one particular prison guard called The Bird, and he was the most demented, evil torturer. Um, and there's a story, even in the newspapers, in 1998, Zamperini was 81 years old, and the Olympics were in Japan, and he had been invited to carry the Olympic torch. And again, he made efforts to meet with the bird, to offer him forgiveness, not just of all the evil that the bird had done to him, but also to offer him forgiveness ultimately in Christ. And very sadly, the bird refused to see Louis Zamperini, and then he passed away, unforgiven. Um, which gets back to Romans 12, 18, as far as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. But Zamperini was not an embittered man. He was a man who was ready to forgive, forgiving of heart. And in that case, that guy chose to reject that. But there's another story. And some of you have heard this one, and that's of Corrie ten Boom. She also suffered much in the Second World War, and in her case, it was the hands of the Nazis. And she writes of a situation. She says, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sin, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat, the brown hat. The next I pictured a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes, in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know as you say that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How can he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours that I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message from that God forgives has a prior condition 
that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those, were, those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was simple and as horrible as that. And so I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand to the one stretched out to me. And as I did so, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I have never known God's love so intensely as I did then. We've all been hurt. We all will be hurt. We've been called to forgive. The gospel doesn't just show us how to forgive. The gospel enables us, those of us who've been forgiven the 10,000 talent debt, have even made, made heirs and sons by God to forgive the hundred denarii debt and to show grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your mercy to us in Christ, which we do not deserve. Help us to see our sin as it really is, as painful as that may be. Help us to rest in the forgiveness we have in Christ. And then as people hurt us, help us always to have a forgiving attitude. Help us to always seek peace. And help us to be ready to pardon others as you have pardoned us. And even among the people today, there are probably people wrestling with very personal things in their own hearts where they've been hurt, where there's conflict, where there's bitterness. Through the gospel, help them to follow in your will and to have grace to be people of grace as you've shown grace to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.